This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Adam Frosch? First, I'll look at the background of this case, move to the timeline of the crime, and offer my analysis. Adam Frosch was born in South Dakota on August 11, 1967. He was raised in Nebraska. He injured his foot while he was in high school and had to have surgery. Evidently, this made an impression on him. He studied podiatry and graduated with a medical degree in that specialty in 1992. Adam married divorced, and married again. By this time, Adam was extremely successful. He had a practice in both Georgia and Florida. He was a leader in the use of a skin grafting technique for people who had diabetes. Adam worked diligently and became a multimillionaire. In 2006, while he was in the middle of getting divorced for a second time, he went on a trip to Paris. While Adam was in Paris, he met a woman named Samira. She was from Madagascar and went to college in Paris. She was also a model. The podiatrist swept Samira off her feet. The two immediately fell in love. They flew back and forth between Paris and Tallahassee, Florida. After Adam's divorce was finalized, he and Samira married in Las Vegas. They lived in a gated community in Tallahassee. Eventually, they had two daughters. Samira was a flamboyant and attention-seeking individual which is not unusual for someone attracted to the modeling industry. She believed that she could replicate the success of Kim Kardashian and build a successful social media empire in order to sell products. In 2012, she hired a producer to make videos featuring one of her daughters. The idea was to post these videos on social media in order to promote a website featuring a clothing line for babies that Samira developed. Adam supplied the money for this venture. The couple and their daughter traveled to places like Washington, D.C., the Kentucky Derby, Disney World, Las Vegas, Hollywood, and Times Square. They would interact with people while recording video. Adam and Samira lived an extravagant lifestyle. Adam owned four houses, a boat, and between 80 and 100 vehicles, including BMWs, Mercedes, and even a Ferrari. In their house, the couple had a number of stuffed exotic animals and myriad items that were gold-colored. Their decorating style could be thought of as a combination of tacky and nauseating. According to the police, Adam was having multiple affairs during his marriage to Samira. At least three of his lovers were exotic dancers. He even had a child with one of his lovers. He financially supported her and the child for quite some time. In 2013, Adam and Samira became involved in a domestic violence situation. Samira attacked Adam and was arrested. When she was released from jail, the couple remained separated. Adam worked to put the relationship back together, but his wife filed for divorce. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. On February 22, 2014, at about 10.51 a.m., a handyman named Gerald Gardner and his 14-year-old son arrived at the gated community where Adam and Samira lived. 38-year-old Samira was 
the only one in her house. At about 11 a.m., Gerald found Samira's body face up in her swimming pool. He notified the authorities. First responders tried to revive Samira, but she was dead. The police started their investigation. They noticed that there was a garden hose running over the pool deck and into the pool. Underneath the hose, in the pool, was one of Samira's sandals. The other sandal was just a few feet away on the bottom of the pool. A small dog owned by the couple was outside near the pool. Initially, the police thought the scene was staged to look like Samira tripped over the garden hose while chasing the dog. The autopsy revealed that Samira had died from blunt force trauma. Both sides of her head had been damaged. On one side, her skull was fractured. The police questioned the handyman, Gerald Gardner. They wondered why he refused to enter the pool and pull Samira out at the direction of the 911 operator. Gerald explained he did not want to leave his DNA on her and be falsely accused of killing her. Considering that Gerald was a black man, and the police have a long history of falsely accusing black men and people who discover dead bodies, I think it is understandable that Gerald did not go into the pool. After seeing surveillance video of Gerald entering the neighborhood just a few minutes before he called 911, the police determined that he could not have been involved. The police were curious as to where Adam was located. They found him about two hours away in Panama City, Florida. He had his two daughters with him. Video surveillance at the security gate of the neighborhood showed that Adam left with his daughters at about 8 a.m. that same day. Adam was interviewed by the police. He said that on the day before, February 21, he and his wife were talking about reuniting. They had sex that evening. After that, she told him that she wanted to have some time alone the next day. Adam decided that he would take his daughters to the beach house. He left at about 8 a.m., which was corroborated by the surveillance video. The police thought that Adam murdered his wife, but they did not have enough evidence at this time to charge him. They decided to arrest him for leaving with the children. Adam was forbidden from taking his daughters by a court order. He was in violation of that court order. Adam was released on bail as the police continued their investigation into the murder. Unrelated to the murder investigation, Adam was suspected of overbilling Medicare by over $1 million in his two practices. The government claimed that in order for Adam to have billed as much as he did, he would have needed to treat two patients simultaneously, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Adam was never charged in connection with this alleged behavior but it didn't make him look good as far as the homicide situation. Adam was eventually indicted for first-degree murder. He was offered a deal by the prosecution, plead guilty to manslaughter, and serve only 15 years. Adam rejected this offer and decided to take his chances at trial. As it turns out, this was not a wise decision. Adam was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point 
when you're wrong. That was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Now moving to my analysis. There are many people who believe that Adam Frosch was not guilty of murder, or at least not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea that Adam was guilty, starting with the inculpatory factors. The nature of Samira's injuries suggests that she did not die by accident. Nothing was stolen from the house, and there was no forced entry. It did not appear to be a burglary gone bad. Adam and his wife had a history of domestic violence, and she was in the process of divorcing him. Adam admitted that he was in the house until 8 a.m. on the day when his wife was found dead. Adam claimed that he only dated other women when he was separated from his wife, but the police say that's not true. He had affairs when he and his wife were together. Adam's stories about having sex with Samira the night before she died and them reconciling are inconsistent with video surveillance that was captured that night. Cameras captured Adam standing next to a vehicle that Samira was driving. She would not let him into the vehicle. At one point, she pulled the door closed as he was trying to talk to her. Adam's mysterious trip with his daughters was out of character. He had never done that before and it represented a violation of a court order. Not long after starting the trip, Adam called a former lover, the one with whom he had a child. She wasn't home, but he may have been calling her to watch the children. When Adam took his daughters, they were dressed in their pajamas, but Samira never let the children leave without being dressed fashionably. She would never commit a crime of fashion. Before the police caught up with Adam, a friend of his told him that his wife had been murdered. After hearing this, he called Samira several times, saying something like, are you okay, and call me back. Why was Adam calling her if he knew that she was dead? People who were dead rarely return phone messages. Other potential suspects were eliminated, like the handyman and the many women who were having affairs with Adam. There were scratches on Adam. He said that some of them were caused by having sex with Samira. To explain one prominent scratch under his nose, Adam said that his 10-year-old daughter caused it by grabbing at his face or striking him with a toy fish, which had little plastic teeth. On one occasion, a man that Samira was talking to on the phone overheard Adam threatening to kill her. Now moving to the exculpatory factors. Several people had a motive to kill Samira, including the people who were having sex with Adam. 
Samira was not necessarily well-liked by a lot of people. She allegedly attacked Adam on at least one occasion. One of Adam's friends even joked about killing her. Samira allegedly had bipolar disorder and had violent mood swings. The handyman who discovered Samira's body was excluded as a potential suspect because the police determined he did not have time to commit the murder. But technically, he did have time. It only takes a few seconds to strike somebody in the head and throw them in a swimming pool. Adam had an alibi starting at 8 a.m. He left the neighborhood with his children. A pathologist for the state was unable to determine the time of death. Maybe Samira died after 8 a.m. A pathologist for the defense said that the time of death was probably after 8 a.m. He noted that there were no wrinkles on her fingers and toes. These wrinkles would form fairly quickly when she was in the water. There was no rigor mortis and there was no settling of blood. Sometime between 10.25 and 10.45 a.m. on the day Samira was murdered, a neighbor saw a tall, thin, black woman who looked like a model walk from Samira's house to an SUV, put something in the SUV, and return to the house. The neighbor was highly credible, but could not say for certain that the person he saw was Samira. If Samira was alive at that time, Adam could not have been the killer. If the neighbor did not see Samira, maybe the person he saw was the killer. The prosecution had a jailhouse informant testify against Adam. This plan backfired badly for the state. The informant claimed that Adam confessed to him that he killed his wife with a golf club. The police found a golf club in Samira's house, but the pathologist for the state said it was unlikely that a golf club was used to strike Samira. So the state's own witness was contradicting the state's theory of the crime. The jailhouse informant had 40 prior felony convictions. That's a four followed by a zero. This undermines the state's case because it makes them seem desperate and incompetent. They were willing to have a man with 40 felony convictions testify about something that could not have happened. It's not clear what their plan was there. After the trial was over, the prosecution read a victim impact statement from Samira's mother. The statement mentioned that there was a prowler around the house in the nights leading up to the murder. The jury never heard that exculpatory evidence because the letter was read after the verdict. When considering all the evidence, do I think that Adam Frosch was guilty? I think he was guilty in reality, but not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Specifically, the witness who saw someone who looked like Samira alive after 8 a.m. and the testimony from the pathologists are difficult to ignore. Moving to the next section, here are my thoughts in a few areas that stood out to me in this case. Item number one. There were a number of indicators outside of the trial which showed that there was a weak case against Adam. For example, Adam was granted bail despite being charged with first-degree murder. That doesn't happen very often. And an insurance company paid Adam a $1 million benefit from his wife's policy. They didn't think that Adam was guilty. Adam used the money to pay for his defense, which meant that he could technically say he received the best defense that killing his wife could buy. Item number two, the state's case was a disaster from the beginning, yet the jury only needed 90 minutes to convict Adam. I'm not surprised they found him guilty, but I am surprised they felt confident to render that verdict after only 90 minutes. The case was fairly complicated. There was a lot of conflicting testimony, much of it caused by the state. 
I find it impossible to believe that the jury carefully reviewed all the evidence. Which brings me to item number three. The lifestyle that Adam lived probably did not help him with the jury. He lived a life of excess. For example, his car buying habit was out of control. Adam would travel to various places, buy a car, and leave it there so he would have it when he returned. He was leaving cars all over the place. Adam routinely flaunted his money and jewelry at places like Las Vegas. He wanted people to know that he was wealthy. His numerous affairs also damaged his reputation and made it seem like he could have been the killer. Samira lived a life of excess as well. For example, she paid $1,500 for a pacifier for one of her daughters. A designer pacifier is an item that can be advertised using the tagline for the person who simply can't waste money fast enough. Now moving to my final thoughts. Adam Frosch was a successful podiatrist who earned millions of dollars. He put his best foot forward and had the world at his feet. Unfortunately, he let his emotions run footloose and fancy free. After murdering his wife, he was able to think on his feet and generate a number of excuses to stand on, but it was not enough to provide his defense a foothold. The rug was pulled out from under Adam's feet. Adam was once admired, but after his conviction, it was clear that he had feet of clay. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.